Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ready? I was born ready. advisory opinions i'm sarah isger that's david french and we have an action-packed pod we have two supreme court cases two circuit cases uh, an interesting impeachment coming out of texas and of course i know i know but you're gonna have to wait yeah we'll talk about the chat gpt case at the end fine you got us we'll do it we have to uh but david let's start with the supreme court Boy, it didn't take them long on Tyler v. Hennepin County, did it? <laughs> no. No, this was like the Supreme Court equivalent of ruling from the bench. <laughs> it really was. So for those who uh, don't quite remember, Geraldine Tyler is 94 years old. She bought a one-bedroom condominium in 1999. She didn't pay her $2,300 in taxes, got another $13,000 in interest and penalties. So Hennepin County seized the condo, sold it for $40,000. And what did they do with the other $25,000 that she didn't owe them? They kept it. Uh, The Supreme Court gnaw-dogged that one pretty hard, David. Geraldine gets her $25,000 back under the takings clause unanimous. We're done. Yeah, we're done. It's not even super interesting because the takings analysis is really, really straightforward, which is you were entitled to the tax liability. You are not entitled to excess of the tax liability. That is, in fact, taking something that is not yours. I mean, this was, when I say ruling from the bench, what I mean is um, for the non-lawyers is Sometimes, rarely, sometimes you'll go in and you'll argue a motion in front of a judge. And instead of waiting for a written opinion, he ends the argument and he says, you lose. And then explains, or maybe not, the reasons why. And it's, you know, it's not your best day when that happens. Um, But this was very straightforward, but I'm much more interested in the budding best friends. Yes. So, okay, wait, before we get to that, real quick, there were a few interesting things to note in this opinion. One, the chief justice assigned it to himself. And um, uh, there were some fun things in that for me. He goes back to the Magna Carta. There's very common law-y takings clause. Where did this come from? Uh, British history getting imported into the United States Constitution's taking clause. That's always fun to see. And that it's unanimous, right? So everyone is signing on to that reasoning for the most part. Also, If you remember when we talked about the oral argument, there was the standing argument that uh, Neil Katyal made on behalf of Hennepin County, arguing that actually this whole thing should be tossed because she didn't sufficiently plead an injury, i.e. sure, her condo uh, was sold for 40. She only owed 15. 
but she never said that she would even get the other 25. Um, There's liens on the house, potentially. She owes a mortgage. Maybe she wasn't financially injured. Um, The chief definitely backhanded that argument. I was a little bit surprised he even mentioned it, considering how dismissive they were of it at the oral argument. But he said, it's not in the record. You don't know what she owes. And uh, let's say she does owe someone else money, then you definitely owe her the money so she can pay those other people. Are you out of your mind? Um, So like you said, very cut and dry Supreme Court opinion. But then there was the concurrence. And David, you know what they say, three times makes a trend. Gorsuch and Jackson together again. Now it's been Gorsuch-Jackson, Jackson-Gorsuch. This one's a Gorsuch writing, concurring in the decision with Jackson joining. And they're buddying up for this, um, you know, cop buddy comedy. This time on uh, noting that while this is a takings clause case, fine, that it could also have been an excessive fines case. And just from a you know substantive standpoint, before we get to the what does this all mean for the romance side, the rom-com. <laughs> the platonic rom-com, just, <laughs> just to avoid any rumor mongering. Sorry, definitely that. Economic penalties imposed to deter willful noncompliance with the law are fines by any other name. And the Constitution has something to say about them, colon, they cannot be excessive. So there, that's your lesson on the excessive fines clause, um, which is basically if they had been able to keep the $25,000, sorry, 20, whatever, $25,000, that that would have then been a fine and it would have clearly been excessive compared to what she owed. So like under any theory of the constitution, she was getting this money back. Only Gorsuch and Jackson writing that. But David, do you have a theory on the Gorsuch Jackson relationship. I don't have a theory. <laughs> it is fascinating. It's fascinating. I'm trying to draw sort of a common thread because this concurrence is sort of a classic, uh, Sarah, shout out to the podcast name, advisory opinion. Um, it was, and you know, we've seen this from other justices. So it's a classic advisory opinion, completely gratuitous, completely unnecessary to the resolution of this case, as was unanimous on takings clause. Uh, it's two justices, so you can't really say, well, they've set new precedent regarding excessive fines. They've certainly sort of raised eyebrows regarding excessive fines, but they've not really set precedent. But it does, let me just say this, Sarah, on this opinion, it does demonstrate how you can have sort of more classic progressive jurists like Justice Jackson and more classic originalist and textualist jurists like Justice Gorsuch and how both of those often combine in sort of a super friends moment when it comes to criminal law. And so that's kind of a common theme we've seen on a number of fronts outside of the Jackson Gorsuch best friends sort of analysis Uh, So I did find that interesting. Um, And one other thing, there's a key name you mentioned, Neil Kutchall. So one of the best Supreme Court advocates out there. And watching him lose 9-0 really tells you how bad his case was. Um, This is like taking LeBron James, putting him with four guys from the local Y rec league and having him swept in the first round of the playoffs 
you wouldn't say what's wrong with LeBron James. You'd say not even LeBron could carry four guys from the Y into the NBA playoffs. That was this kind of situation. Not even Neil Kotchall could make this dog of a case bark less offensively. Uh, all right. So I have a few th- theories that have been floated out there that I think are worth discussing. The first one is the purely personal theory that they have bonded in a friendship way and it's allowing them to, to come together on some of these. And the idea behind this one is that both of them maybe came in hot on their first terms and were judged perhaps harshly by their peers. What do I mean by that? That Gorsuch for his first term was asking a lot of questions, sort of bucking tradition in some ways, uh, moving some elbows around, and it wasn't well liked by some of the other more senior justices. And that Justice Jackson in this term has talked the most in a lot of these arguments. I'm forgetting whether that was word count or time. It might have been both, actually. Uh, And that that has annoyed some of her colleagues. And so they're bonding over their shared obnoxiousness or something. (laughs) I am least persuaded by that argument. Um, It might be that they have some core personality traits in common, but I'm not persuaded that like everyone else hates them and that's why they hang out together in concurrences. No. Uh, Okay, number two. And David, this goes a little bit to your point, which is the lenity argument, right? That when it comes to these criminal or criminal adjacent sort of government overreach cases that they have found kindred spirits in each other. Um, And that means that their conservative to liberal ideology just isn't as relevant as how they view the government kind of skeptically in these cases or um, government power grabs, which is really interesting when you think about sort of conservatives in general, when they trust the government and liberals in general, when they trust the government, that maybe both of these guys are willing to chuck trusting the government and that that's been uh, an area in which they have found common purpose. The third one, though, um, I think is also worth a slight exploration, which is, you know, that institutionalist axis that I've tried to explain with varying degrees of success, perhaps, Part of perhaps an institutional axis is a willingness to write advisory opinions, if you will, (laughs) Uh, to take on issues that aren't squarely presented, to offer additional thoughts. And it's interesting in three of these cases that it has just been the two of them. And it might be worth running through the three real quick. So obviously we have this one. The case itself is on the takings clause. And they're adding in their two cents that even without the takings clause, they would have also found this violated the excessive fines clause. And here's just a few paragraphs on the excessive fine clause for those who might be looking down the future at the excessive fines clause. So that's number one. So David, then let's move to the other two. One of them fits that government overreach thesis really well. That's that Pacelli versus IRS and what notice the IRS owes you, sort of a core government overreach one. Roberts was writing for a unanimous court, exact same as this case. And then Jackson files the concurring opinion in which Gorsuch joined. And then the last one, though, doesn't really fit this one perfectly because it was the Andy Warhol case. That's not government overreach. 
And that one, it was Gorsuch filing the concurring opinion in which Jackson joined. So I don't know that any of these theories fully answer the question, except that uh, maybe horseshoe of judicial philosophy, right? Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see this play out over time, if it does at all, but still interesting. It's still interesting. I mean, this entire month, and I mean by that the month of May, has been a lot of either unanimity or um, strange bedfellows yes. for these cases. That's not surprising because the cases that are going to be more likely, I think, to follow along that X-axis conservative to liberal ideology opinions are going to come later. Those are going to be June cases. May cases are going to tend to be the weirder, quirkier. But yeah, I mean, you have the liberals splitting with each other, Jackson on one side, Sotomayor and Kagan on the other, um, Jackson joining Gorsuch or Thomas uh, with Gorsuch dissenting. I mean, we'll get to the next case, of course, which has an interesting Alito versus Kavanaugh split. But overall, probably best not to make too many judgments without all the cases from the term, because it can be a little distorting when you only look at the cases that come out in May, which by definition tend to be the quote easier cases in the sense they were done sooner. Right. They're not random when they come out. Right. (laughs) True. True. Absolutely. Speaking of strange bedfellows. You ready? The EPA case. You ready for Sackett v. EPA? It was in the top cases that everyone was watching for, but it just didn't quite have the sexiness uh, like a Harvard or a 303 creative. But here it is. So this is the Sacketts. They bought this property 10 years ago. They wanted to build their dream home on it in Idaho. And the EPA comes in and is like, JK, this is a wetland. Uh, If you do anything to mess with this wetland, it's a $40,000 fine a day. A day. (laughs) Which, I mean, is just such an absurd amount of money as to be incomprehensible in my view. Okay, so it was a unanimous decision with Alito writing that the Sacketts can build their home. This isn't a wetland. EPA, you overstepped. But that's not what makes this case interesting. No. And God, it was like a Rorschach test on Twitter. And it was so annoying because basically Chuck Schumer is like the MAGA Supreme Court is at it again. And then all these people, you know, dunking on Chuck Schumer of like, ho ho, it was unanimous opinion. Okay. Well, yeah, that part wasn't unanimous, but it actually was 5-4 on what the rule moving forward for the EPA will actually be when it comes to defining a wetland. So you had Alito writing, the chief Thomas Gorsuch and Barrett on one side, and that's that the wetland needs to be adjoining, contiguous, all part of the same body of water. And then you had Kavanaugh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson saying, nope, it just has to be adjacent to the body of water, which will often mean adjoining, but doesn't have to mean adjoining. What it doesn't mean, however, dear EPA, is that a wetland is everything that occasionally has water. Or is in the general vicinity of... (laughs) So no question there were nine votes to reign in the EPA. That by itself is really interesting. But I got really into the the text 
the, the fight over textualism. And I'll just read you some shade by Alito. Alito, not shy about the shade. So <laughs> here's section five of the majority opinion. Nothing in the separate opinions filed by Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Kagan undermine our analysis. Justice Kavanaugh claims that we have, quote, rewritten the Clean Water Act, and Justice Kagan levels similar charges. These arguments are more than unfounded. We have analyzed the statutory language in detail, but the separate opinions pay no attention whatsoever to Section 1362.7, the key statutory provision that limits the Clean Water Act's geographic reach to, quote, the waters, waters emphasized, the waters of the United States. Thus, neither separate opinion even attempts to explain how the wetlands included in their interpretation fall within a fair reading of waters. Textualist arguments that ignore the operative text cannot be taken seriously. (laughs) Now, that's not the tattoo I'm going to get. But I think that would make a good tattoo for somebody. Textualist arguments that ignore the operative text cannot be taken seriously. So, right, according to Alito, Kavanaugh is not a textualist. He's just running loose out there, not caring one way or the other what the statute even says, right? Not really. It, it was a lot messier than that. A lot messier than that. Absolutely a lot messier than that. All right. So I'm going to walk through the actual text, the two statutory provisions that we're going to talk about, and then I'm turning it over to you, David. All right. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What Alito says is that states can discharge into, quote, waters of the United States. That's category A. Unless... They are uh, traditional navigable waters, B, that includes wetlands adjacent to those traditional navigable waters, C. So states may be permitted to discharge into A minus B, which includes C. Therefore, we know that some wetlands are Waters of the United States, says Alito. And so how do we then decide what an adjacent water of the United States is? And that's where he gets into his analysis. But he's right. He starts with waters of the United States, which category B seems to tell us is traditional navigable waters. But here's where it gets weird. Clearly, that 
included is wetlands adjacent to those traditional waters. So doesn't it really matter what the word adjacent means? Right. Justice Kavanaugh thinks so. (laughs) And so Justice Kavanaugh is going to focus on the word adjacent. And he says adjacent is not the same word as adjoining. Adjoining means touching. Adjacent means often touching, but not always. It can just mean close to, adjacent, that they're different words. And so for Alito to simply say that because Kavanaugh doesn't deal with the text of the statute, he's not a textualist, is weird. Kavanaugh is accepting as fact everything that Alito said about waters of the United States and traditional navigable waters. He's just turning to what adjacent wetlands means. What does adjacent tell us? Alito says that it has to mean adjoining. Kavanaugh says, no, adjacent has a different meaning than adjoining. And the the statute says adjacent. And remember, that adjacent language was added by Congress, meaning Congress actually took the time to be like, ah, these court cases aren't coming out exactly the way we want. We'll actually amend the statute to be more clear. Uh, Weird fight over the textualism, David. Yeah, and I actually found myself, so I read both opinions, and I thought Alito's was quite persuasive from a common sense perspective. In other words, okay, how can we make this clear and easy for everyone to understand? Well, everything's just got to be touching. From a textual perspective, I found myself more persuaded by Kavanaugh because adjacent and adjoining are not synonyms. They're not exactly the same concept. And so Alito was essentially saying adjacent means adjoining. But does adjacent really mean adjoining? And so that I found to be a really interesting part of the conversation. And I think that adjacent, that Kavanaugh and the three Democratic appointees had the better argument on the actual word adjacent. And I think that from a policy perspective, Alito had the better argument for what the rule should be. But, but that's not exactly the analysis we're talking about. It's not what the rule should be. It's what is, what is the rule and is adjacent adjoining. And that, that's sort of how I came out on it. Although I found from a common sense standpoint, the Alito argument to be really powerfully persuasive because what is adjacent? How, how far, how far it's very difficult, except in this case, and all nine could say in this case, it's not adjacent. I'm adjacent to Mars. If we're talking about the whole solar system, right? but the purpose of the EPA, I'm probably not adjacent to Mars. Right. Exactly. So that's tough. Look, here was Alito's pushback to your argument, Kavanaugh's argument on adjacent when he was making it, which again, I thought that one paragraph was a lot of snark without a lot of substance. But the argument is in there. And that is, if you simply read it as adjacent wetlands, you've basically rewritten the statute to say waters of the United States and adjacent wetlands. When in fact, it says waters of the United States, including adjacent wetlands. And his point is, actually, it's not the word adjacent that you need to focus on. It's the word including, because that means it's not all adjacent wetlands. It's some adjacent wetlands. And therefore, adjacent means adjoining. I don't know. I I don't find that terribly persuasive. Um, but I mean, 
it is interesting. I, I, I found his derision towards the Kavanaugh argument to be unwarranted. Um, but can I can I take off on an adjacent point? <laughs> like Mars adjacent or like my backyard neighbor adjacent? <laughs> backyard neighbor adjacent. Okay. So there's a couple of things here that I thought were really interesting around the larger issue of administrative law and deference. Okay, because this is a big point that we've talked about a lot is to what degree should uh, courts defer to allegedly expert agency um, determinations. And there's one thing that there are a couple of aspects to this that show why, for example, I am very hostile to the judicial deference point. And one is, if you walked through the procedural history of this case, Sarah, you saw that there were multiple different agency interpretations of the statute that happened in relatively short order from 2015 to 2019 to 2021, which indicated the different political priorities of the different presidents who are running the agencies. They didn't demonstrate some sort of evolving technocratic disclosure of what's really truly the expert analysis of the statute. It was how can the different politicians who are in charge with enforcing this law interpret their enforcement obligation differently according to their political priorities? And I'm sorry, I don't see the case for judicial deference there. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting, again, this is this is um, a, just a tremendous quote that is so indicative of how people get frustrated with bureaucracy. So this is in the guidance about what is or is not a wetland. So this is, I'm quoting the court. Even if a property appears dry, application of the guidance in a complicated manual ultimately decides whether it contains wetlands. And then in the manual, it says, it's describing as not atypical examples of wetlands that periodically lack wetlands indicators. So what's a wetland? Well, it's sometimes a wetland, but not always a wetland. Sometimes it lacks wetland indication. And you're just like, what? What? And now I'm sure, and I'm sure there are reader or who, there are listeners who will say, well, I'm, I'm jumping up and down and ra raising my hand and I'm yelling and I'm screaming. What that means is sometimes wetlands are actually dry, but they're still wetlands. Got it. Okay. Understand. But if we're going to talk about levying fines of $40,000 a day against average homeowners, let's talk about excessive fines, Justices Gorsuch and Jackson, 40,000 a day to normal homeowners. Shouldn't your guidance be understandable by normal homeowners would be my novel assessment here, Sarah. So not to mention, by the way, that then they're like, well, you should reach out to the EPA in advance and ask us for our jurisdictional assessment, except that they also reserve the right to change their mind on their own jurisdictional assessment. So that doesn't do you any good. Literally, you can't read the regulation yourself and come up with what it could mean. And you also can't ask the EPA. They may not tell you. And if they do, they reserve the right to change their mind under a different administration. <laughs> That's a joke. It's nuts. So I totally see why the EPA lost here 9-0. Like if you look at the actual facts here, you had, they were, they were, filling, they were filling a property that 
was a quote unquote wetland close to a ditch that drained into a creek that drained. To, it was like so attenuated. It was easy to see the nine zero. The only thing that the EPA was willing to say were not, uh, they were not able to regulate. This is not a joke. This is like actually written into the regulation. It was two categories. Swimming pools. Yeah. And puddles. <laughs> That's it. They acknowledge that they can't regulate swimming pools and puddles. Though I will note, puddle was not defined anywhere that I found. Um, the difference between a puddle and a wetland, by their definition, may actually be more adjacent than one would otherwise think. The fact that they have to say they can't regulate swimming pools is outrageous in some sense. Like, that's the outer boundary? Uh-oh. And when does a recurring puddle, Sarah, become a wetland? I've got one in my driveway. Yeah, I've got one in my front yard. It's every single time it rains, even more than a little, there's some pooling in my front yard. <laughs> Uh-oh, I wouldn't call it wetland. pooling, David. I would, I would really stick with the word puddle. Although now you have this opinion. That's true. I, well, it's not swimming pooling, though, so I'm in real trouble. <laughs> That's right. That sounds pooling. It's just pooling. Like puddle to pooling to wetland feels like a pretty straight line. Slippery slope. Look, there's there's a few things here. One, no question. You have nine justices agreeing this is massive regulatory overreach by the EPA. Not a close call. No one is defending what the EPA not only did here with the Sackets, but has been doing when it comes to trying to regulate WOTUS, Waters of the United States. Number two, this has been a huge fight over WOTUS for years, back and forth in administrations, as you noticed, um, as you noted, like the WOTUS fights during the Trump administration were lit, y'all. And then, and subject to nationwide injunctions. And this was all part of this other administrative fight. So you got to know that backstory. And three, and this is maybe the story that I'm more interested, big picture, this is another case where actually Congress could resolve this. But I did find it interesting that nobody seemed to suggest that in this opinion, whereas they have in other iterations of regulatory overreach. We don't think you have the power, but hey, Congress, if you want to give them the power, feel free to do so. There were a few glances in that direction. Certainly Justice Alito um, saying that Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes, quoting Justice Mm -hmm. Scalia, is a nod to that idea, right? Congress, if you want to hide an elephant in this mouse hole, feel free to do so, but we're not going to assume you meant to do so. Um, And then you have this Kagan paragraph. I just have to agree with David Latt. Like, she is the best writer on the court. Uh, So this is her concurrence. It's separate from the Kavanaugh concurrence. Kavanaugh does not join this. So it's only the three justices. So I'll conclude, sadly, by repeating what I wrote last year with the replacement of only a single word. The court substitutes its own ideas about policymaking for Congress's. The court will not allow the Clean Water Act, that's the only word she had to change, (laughs) the Clean Water Act, to work as Congress instructed. The court, rather than Congress, will decide how much regulation is too much. Because that is not how I think our government should work, more because it is not how the Constitution thinks our government should work. I respectfully concur in the judgment only. Fair enough, but no matter which side of this debate you fall on, Congress could fix this. You think the court's doing too much? Congress can rein it in. You think the court's doing not enough? 
Congress can say, do more. Um, so losing this case isn't really losing in a traditional sense if you actually believe that Congress has the ability to do this. The political ability, I mean. They obviously have the constitutional ability. Yeah, this is a statutory construction case. Congress can change the statute. And if they don't like, the, if they think that the EPA was too restricted, although I have a feeling that it might be some time before Congress does anything about this. <laughs> Congress is not going to be interested in touching MODIS. And to the extent they are, and this is, you know, political prognostication or whatever, but uh, if you wanted to take a little straw poll right now of members of Congress and how they'd vote on WOTUS, Alito is actually going to be much closer to where the body of Congress is than Kagan or probably even than Kavanaugh in the sense that there's not a whole lot of political will to tell homeowners that even more of their land can be regulated by the EPA. Yes, <laughs> agree with that completely. Okay, David. Uh, two circuit decisions that I want to talk about. The first comes out of the 11th circuit and uh, shout out to David Latt for highlighting this in his newsletter and original jurisdiction. But boy, it has like sat there and I've been thinking about it and thinking about it and word vomiting to poor husband of the pod about it. All right. So uh, guy is in prison and while he is in prison, um, he has seizures. They diagnose him with um, a seizure disorder. Uh, they prescribed him Dilantin. He gets Dilantin every day. And then for four days in a row, they don't give him his Dilantin. On the fourth day, he has two catastrophic seizures um, in which he suffers brain damage. Unrelatedly, he dies later, and this is brought by his estate, arguing an Eighth Amendment violation. So this comes up to the court as qualified immunity. Do those prison officials uh, have qualified immunity against this case alleging an Eighth Amendment violation? All of that's fun and games. The Eleventh Circuit holds, uh, yes, they have qualified immunity. There is no, um, you know, no road to recovery here. But Judge Newsom, famous for his concurring with Judge Newsom opinions, <laughs> uh, concurs with himself to note that he thinks the whole creation of sort of this indifference law within the Eighth Amendment. This is when your prison conditions show an indifference that that can somehow raise a constitutional claim to cruel and unusual punishment is all wrong. His argument is the Eighth Amendment says inflict punishment. And both of those words imply intentionality. You can't uh, negligently punish someone or negligently inflict a punishment on someone. And so the whole 11th Circuit debate over whether you have to show mere negligence or gross negligence by prison officials to get to your you know, qualified immunity Eighth, uh, Eighth Amendment claim, look, that's the circuit precedent. He's going to apply it. And by the way, the answer is has to be more than gross negligence. That's a whole lot of negligence piled on negligence. He's like, but it shouldn't be anything. In order to have a constitutional violation, it has to be intentional. I find that textually to be like really intriguing. And I'll tell you why, David, because I think he is right that the words punishment and inflict imply intentionality, but they don't answer the full question for me because at the, the, the intentional punishment is putting you in jail. 
And so then if they don't give you your medication, that is part of the punishment because you don't have any other ability to do otherwise. You can't go to CVS, Walgreens, and pick up your medication. And so maybe it doesn't do much good. But I think the pushback to that is, no, think of it more like a pattern and practice problem that we have with police departments. That the punishment was putting you in jail with adequate medical care. The fact that then for four days you didn't get adequate medical care because these people are dum-dums is not intentional. Now, if you were sentenced to prison in a place with no nurses or doctors, then of course that would be so um, foreseeable uh, as to rise to the level of intentionality. If there's no doctors or nurses, then obviously you're not getting your medication. That is therefore part of the punishment. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of persuaded by Newsom here, even though, by the way, I think it's a big problem incentive structure wise that you would basically allow anything short of pervasive pattern and practice, intentional lack of training, for instance, anything short of that. And you have no rights as an inmate after your liberties have been taken away. So I used uh, the example of like, you know, at this prison, rats nibble on your toes at night. Well, we didn't mean to have rats in your prison. Uh, we didn't like not feed the rats so they would nibble on your toes. But yeah, sometimes there's rats. Yikes. Yeah, I didn't find it that persuasive, to be honest. So his reasoning would essentially be something like this. If I, the punishment that I'm inflicting is the prisons, and as you were saying, it's five years in prison. If prison is, there are poor conditions in prison, okay, that might be an issue that you would bring up with the state under state law, but it's not punishment. It's not an Eighth Amendment violation because it's not punishment. Punishment means intention. Okay, let's take an issue that has been extremely important and does, but does not get enough uh, enough attention, quite frankly. And actually is the subject of a lot of horrible jokes, prison rape. Okay. So if you, if you have a situation where you're sentencing someone to prison, but because of the total negligence of prison authorities, it's not just that you have five years in prison. The actual punishment is this five years of prison and five years of vulnerability to sexual assault. In the real world, that's what the actual thing that you're experiencing is. To say that that's not an Eighth Amendment violation when that is the reality of what the punishment is in the real world, to me, strikes me as a, a reading of the word punishment that is extremely constricted, um, extremely constricted. Uh, the fact that someone wasn't sentenced to, formally sentenced to, imprisonment with a random chance of rape does not mean that imprisonment with a random chance of rape wasn't the punishment because it was, it was the actual punishment that they received. And that's where I am. I'm departing. I thought it was interesting. I'm glad you highlighted it. I'm glad David Ladd highlighted it. But I found it unpersuasive sort of as a matter of practical fact. So here would be my Newsom-esque pushback to your example. Okay. And again, in the end, we may end up 
kind of back where we currently are, just under a different rubric, if you will, Um, which is currently it would have to be more than gross negligence as to why you were the victim of sexual assault in prison. Under the Newsom rubric, and I'm putting words in his mouth here because it was a relatively short concurrence. It was just thought-provoking. But under my version of the Newsom (laughs) rubric, instead of more than gross negligence, what you'd have is to prove um, that, in fact, they had not, they had intentionally chosen not to train anyone on how to stop prison rape, not put any resources into stopping prison rape, even though they knew it was a pervasive problem, and that that sort of pattern and practice rises to the level of intentionality. And then you get the intentional punishment of prison rape because it is so um, not protected against as to be assumed to be part of your punishment. But this is another interesting problem with the Eighth Amendment analysis in general. The person who actually is doing the intentional act of sentencing you to jail, prison, is in the judicial branch. The person executing that punishment is in the executive branch. Whose intentionality matters there? Because the infliction is in a different branch than the executor of the infliction. Obviously, you can't prove an intentionality on the judicial side, right? You can't expect judges to know what's going on in the prison. That would have to be on the executive side, but it's a little bit messy for me. He would probably say... If you can prove intentionality in withholding the medication, even though that's that's infliction. But going back to your point, the law has long recognized that there's a degree of culpability that is so a, a degree of recklessness or gross negligence that's so extreme that it's functionally intention. And maybe that's what more than gross negligence actually rises to anyway. So we're it's different sides of the exact same coin. Not a lot of cases are going to come out differently. And this one, it definitely isn't coming out differently. You know, they missed his medication for four days. Right. And I'm, I'm reminded of, for example, when we talk about um, very different area of law, defamation and the actual malice standard for public figures. Well, it turns out that actual malice doesn't just mean intentional malice. It can also mean a level of recklessness so great as to be functionally malicious. And so, you know, this is a long, a concept long encompassed uh, by common law. And I think rightfully so. But yeah, I'm glad you highlighted it. Very interesting. But not as interesting as the next one. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The next one 
we need to give a shout out to uh, Rafi Melkonian. And uh, Rafi is wonderful to follow on Twitter. RM Fifth Circuit is where you can find him. He also has a new podcast. Congrats, Rafi. Welcome. Um, so <laughs> here's how the Twitter thread starts. And Rafi is just great at covering some of this appellate court stuff. Okay, quick appellate Twitter story. A while ago, I was attending an oral argument session at the Fifth Circuit. A lawyer was arguing that COVID church closures violated his client church's First Amendment rights. All right, I've heard that claim. But his theory was that the secular government had no authority to order a church to do anything at all. He was waving a Bible around while he said it. Odd, I thought. The panel asked him whether he was actually making the argument that the government can't close churches while opening other things. Oh, no, he said. There's a categorical bar. I'm not making that argument at all. The panel tried a few more times to see if he really meant it, but he did. I sort of laughed internally because the guy had obviously waived his only argument. Whatever. I left to get lunch with a friend. The friend said, you know who that guy was, right? Me. No. Him. Roy Moore. Like the Alabama Chief Justice, mall fancier Roy Moore. I added the description. <laughs> anyway, here's the decision. This came out in February of this year, David. We just missed it. But yeah, the, the general argument is that, well, the general argument that we've talked about under pandemic law is that a state closed churches while allowing casinos or dry cleaners or nail salons to stay open and that that's a violation of the First Amendment. And he was like, no, no, that's not what I want to argue. I'm not arguing that. I don't want to argue that. And in fact, argued that in fact, the secular government, sorry, the, the, the federal government has, and state governments have no authority over churches whatsoever to close them at all. And some <laughs> of the, they included some of the back and forth in the footnotes. Um, and it was really something, David. Uh, Judge Oldham joined by Judge Elrod concurring in the decision to toss this case said, uh, had Pastor Spell's counsel not affirmatively waived his best argument, his victory was all but assured. But oddly, Pastor Spell's counsel insisted on taking a loss. Uh, I was so intrigued by this, Sarah, that I went back and I listened to big chunks of the oral argument and it was spectacularly dumb. <laughs> I mean, just spectacularly dumb because here you had, and, and, the, and the footnotes don't quite convey the puzzlement that one hears from the judges combined with the decisiveness that one hears from Judge Roy Moore. So it's quite obvious they're saying, you know, you can win this case. I mean, they're not, they're not saying it in exactly like this, but the curiosity, wait a minute, you're, you're not making the constitutional claim under Lukumi. You're not making the constitutional claim under Lukumi. And he keeps saying, no, I'm making the constitutional claim. I'm not arguing Lukumi because I'm arguing the constitution which doesn't make any sense because Lukumi was decided on First Amendment grounds, right? So they're saying, wait a minute, no, you have a constitutional argument that 
you can't discriminate against churches. And he goes, I don't want to make that argument because I want to make the constitutional argument. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Lakumi is a constitutional argument. He goes, but nay, nay, there is a constitution. It goes like this that you're thinking, what is going on? And then you realize there is only one argument that he thinks is actually the constitutional argument. And it is the absurd fever swamp weirdo argument that there is no state jurisdiction over churches at all, period. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, okay, I could imagine making that as an argument where you want to try to set precedent. And then with a fallback of, and if you don't adopt my crazy theory, I have a sane one and we can win. Nope. So this would be like your church doesn't have to match building codes, like to prevent it falling down during earthquakes or fire hazards because the government has no authority over the church. Human sacrifice, Sarah. There is no government authority over the church. So I, I want to read the Elrod more back and forth. Elrod, perhaps I misunderstood your briefs, but I thought your briefs argued that other entities were allowed to remain open. Council, we argued throughout the brief that that's what happened. Yes, Elrod. And that's what makes it wrong under Lakumi. Council, no. That's what makes it wrong (laughs) under Everson, the argument that we're talking about. Elrod, if you can win under Lakumi and you can't win under Everson, are you going to pass on a win? If the case law (laughs) is not such that there is this impregnable barrier between church and state such that there can be no regulation among all kinds of entities, but the law is instead that you can't treat religious entities different than other entities, if that is the law in the United States, Are you saying that you don't wish to argue that theory, even if you could prevail on it? More. We can't win on any other argument. It's a loss because it violates the United States Constitution. That's what I'm talking about. What is he saying? Um, You are poorly representing your client, sir. Oh my gosh. And then the opinion itself... I I love this. Um, Pastor Mark Anthony Spell and his church appealed the dismissal of their 42 USC section 1983 claims alleging that state officials violated their rights under the religion clauses of the First Amendment. Because Pastor Spell cannot prevail on the legal theory he advances, we affirm. (laughs) This was an unpublished per curiam opinion. The Fifth Circuit was very annoyed with this. Yes. Pastor Spell explicitly waived the argument that defendant's actions violated his constitutional rights under current free exercise jurisprudence. So we do not address that argument. In his briefing for the case, Pastor Spell instead advanced an absolute categorical theory of the religion clauses, arguing that church assembly is, quote, beyond the jurisdiction of the government, unquote. Wow. And to think... He could have been a U.S. senator. <laughs> he came so close, Sarah, so close to being a U.S. senator. And this is a fun little story I want to share. In 2017, I wrote that I was against Roy Moore becoming a U.S. senator. And there was an explosion of rage on the right that I argued that his um, 
corroborated the corroborated claims that he had engaged in sexually inappropriate behavior with underage girls, disqualified him from becoming a U.S. senator, was so enraging to some members of my own congregation of church that I attended that when, after I wrote about it and made that argument in the pages of National Review, I walk into a basketball game, my son's playing for his Christian high school, and two families turn their backs to us rather than even look at us because I did not want this man to be a United States senator. I feel vindicated, Sarah. All right. Uh, Next up, there's been an impeachment, David. Not at the federal level, but in the state of Texas, the Republican-controlled state house brought 20 impeachment counts against Attorney General Ken Paxton, the vote was overwhelming, uh, uh, roughly 120 to 23, might've been 121 to 123. So 60 plus Republicans voted to impeach the Republican attorney general. You have Donald Trump, Kari Lake, Ted Cruz, all coming out to defend Paxton. Interesting difference, by the way, between Texas impeachment law and federal impeachment law. In the federal system, when you impeach someone, as we all now know, that's all interesting that the House does that. It goes to trial in the Senate. Unless you are convicted, nothing changes in your life. Not true in Texas. Once you are impeached by the House, you are removed from your official duties pending trial in the Senate. So Ken Paxton is not acting as attorney general in the state of Texas until the conclusion of that trial in the Senate uh, which they have now said will must happen by uh, roughly mid-August. I think it was August 23rd. Um, but there's some fun facts in there, David. One is that his wife is a sitting Texas senator, but maybe also interesting is that one of, is this the, the, wife he cheated one on? of the 20 counts is that part of the corruption was that the dude hired his mistress to pay her off, basically. Look, there's 20 counts. They're all pretty crazy. If you have followed this at all, you'll know that a lot of the senior staff uh, in the Texas Attorney General's office turned whistleblowers. They then were fired. They claimed retaliation. Uh, Ken Paxton then settled with most of them for $3.5 roughly million dollars and then asked the Texas Treasury through the Texas House to please pay that for him out of public funds. That's where the Texas House then was like, say what now? Started doing their own investigation, got testimony from the whistleblowers. But there is another piece to this, David, that I find baffling. The Department of Justice has been investigating Ken Paxton for five years, has not brought indictments. What? Because some of these charges are really easy. You know, in most bribery or public corruption cases, you've got a quid pro quo problem. Uh, or what we'll call the Bob McDonald problem, where the quid has to be for the quo, or actually the quo for the quid, if you will. Um, That's not what the allegations are in Texas. In some of these allegations, sure, there's a lot of quid pro quo bribery stuff being alleged, but it's actually that the quid itself is illegal, so you don't need to prove the quo. I.e., that Ken Paxton accessed unredacted 
investigative files, including potentially grand jury reports, and handed it over to this dude who then, of course, was also paying him, putting his mistress on payroll, paying for his condos, refurbishment, whatever. But you don't need to prove any of that because if he handed over unredacted grand jury testimony to a random citizen, that breaks the law anyway. No need for money to have changed hands in exchange for that. Weird that DOJ is still sitting on this. There were some reasons, you know, there was, they didn't have a confirmed U.S. attorney for some amount of time at the change in the administration. Okay, but we're well past any of that, David. And I do find it odd. And it's not that it's necessarily exculpatory, but I think this would all be a lot easier if DOJ had charged him and gone to trial. 100% disagree if the DOJ had charged him and gone to trial. I mean, 100% agree. (laughs) Okay. I was like, what? (laughs) Sorry. 100% agree that if the DOJ had charged him and gone to trial, this would be easier. Um, Don't know if it would have changed Ted Cruz or Donald Trump at all, or Carrie Lake at all in their assessment. But in many people's eyes, this would be easier. Totally agree with that. But it is important to outline that we have a difference between a a criminal proceeding versus a civil political impeachment proceeding that is related to not just the criminal claims, but also the guy was sued in civil court and was going to have to pay a, was asking the state of Texas to pay a multi-million dollar civil settlement. It does, there's nothing at all wrong with the Texas House of Representatives than lifting up the hood and looking at why are we paying $3.3 million? Because that's a lot more than nuisance money. Uh, that's not what you would call a nuisance settlement. Is there something there? Is there a reason why we're asked to pay $3.3 million? And it is entirely within their purview to say, you know what? We now know why he wrote, he was wanting that seven figure check to be written. Because there's something, there's a problem with the way he has conducted himself in office. And I think that's entirely defensible. And one other non-legal point here. I'm going to applaud every time I see self-policing. Because I do not think that our dysfunctional politics will be cured by left beating right or right beating left. Our dysfunction is only going to be really truly cured when right reforms right and left reforms left. And so when I see examples of Republicans holding other Republicans accountable, I'm going to like that. I mean, with the, of course, caveat that only when it's appropriate, but when it's appropriate, when there is evidence sufficient to support an impeachment verdict, then yeah, good. Let's be real. We haven't had an over-enforcement problem within either of the two parties. When that happens, then you can say that like, you oh no, it needs to be appropriate. Until then, we can probably leave out the when appropriate. Exactly. uh, Caveat. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right, David, last thing. Um, uh, Well, this case has been making the rounds. So (laughs) a man named Roberto Mata was sitting on an airplane like any other day, the aisle seat, as so many men are wont to do, and a metal serving cart struck his knee during a flight to Kennedy International Airport in New York. He was grievously injured by this and filed a personal injury lawsuit. Uh, Unfortunately, he had filed it out of time. The statute had already run, but his lawyers... Nevertheless, submitted a 10-page brief citing 
more than half a dozen cases that said that it was okay that they had missed the statute of limitations, that there was nevertheless personal and subject matter jurisdiction over this claim. There was a problem, however, in the filing, um, which is that none of the cases were real. It turns out that the lawyer in question um, asked ChatGPT to help him with his legal research. ChatGPT came up with these six, seven cases. And then the lawyer did his due diligence. He asked ChatGPT if they were, in fact, real cases. And ChatGPT said, yes, Varghese <laughs> v. China Southern Airline Company Limited, 925 F3rd 1339 from the 11th Circuit 2019 is a real case and can be found on legal research databases such as Westlaw and LexisNexis. The lawyer took ChatGPT at its word and filed the brief. When opposing counsel was like, we can't find any of these cases. And the judge was like, I also cannot find any of these cases. And they asked him to please submit the cases. He asked ChatGPT for the case itself. And ChatGPT gave him the full case. (laughs) (laughs) So it even has like, it's a PDF that has the stuff at the top. The judge ended up having to follow up, called the 11th Circuit and was like, hi, can you confirm (laughs) that this case number, order docket number does not match this? And yeah, they had to go through all this stuff. So that judge has now issued a show cause order to both the lawyer who did the research who is not actually uh, licensed to practice in federal court and his fellow attorney who signed it because he was licensed to practice in federal court of why they shouldn't be sanctioned. And David, there's a few thoughts on this. A, there's simply the dunking. Everyone's enjoying the dunking. Yeah. Two, does this actually rise to a sanctionable level? And if so, what are appropriate sanctions and how serious should they be? And three, didn't these guys kind of do everyone a favor in highlighting in such stark relief that lawyers should not be using chat GPT for legal research, looking at you associates and frankly, looking at you partners that when you now get research from an associate, don't go to chat GPT to check whether it's a real case citation. Why would you ever do that? That's why Lexus and Westlaw are there. They absolutely deserve sanction. I love the phrase when you said they did their due diligence and asked chat GPT <laughs> to double check. Chat GBT. Remember, this is the same thing that said uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the dissent in the gay marriage case in Obergefell. And then when you followed up, it was like, are you sure she was in the dissent? It was like, yes, definitely. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, to use Chat GBT like that and then to use Chat GBT to check when there is something called Westlaw, there is something called Lexus, there is even something called Google. You can put in a case citation and it will come up on case text. It'll come up on find law. I mean, it is it is not hard to do this. So sanction, yes. Did they perform a public service in their sanctionable conduct? Yes, also. <laughs> but how, Absolutely. how sanctioned should they be here? Pretty sanctioned. Pretty sanctioned. Like not disbarred. No, no. no. Okay. I would say like 
can't appear in front of that judge for a year, two years. Definitely can't years. appear in front of the judge. I think some financial uh, compensation into the victim's compensation front is warranted here. They wasted the time of opposing counsel and they wasted the court's time by having to call the 11th circuit. So like just that alone is worthy of some financial sanction. Um, but you know, David, I did have a, a run in like this recently. Like we're all trying to figure out what this product is good for and what it's not good for. And I was trying to find a specific quote from the anti-federalist papers without having to actually go back through and reread my anti-federalist papers. Let's be honest. So I asked ChatGPT, I'm looking for a quote that's about this and this from the Anti-Federalist Papers. What's the quote? And ChatGPT gave me the full quote and it was totally made up because that's not what ChatGPT does. It actually doesn't quote things. What it's using is word proximity. And so Mm. it would almost be impossible for ChatGPT to correctly quote something to you based on how it functions. Um, but I, I felt it was a really good learning experience because it actually weirdly was helpful and that it got me close enough that I could then get the quote for myself. I compare ChatGPT now to a sloppier version of Wikipedia 15 years ago. So do you remember early Wikipedia was interesting, but unbelievably unreliable? To the point where it was so unreliable that the idea of even using Wikipedia to cite anything was considered a ridiculous joke. Wikipedia has gotten a lot better in the last 15 years, but the overhang of how poor Wikipedia was still persists so that you still don't cite Wikipedia for any, like I never, when I link to something, when I try to, uh, you know, when I try to provide a substantiation for a claim, I never link to Wikipedia. But Wikipedia is good enough to where I can go and get what I need to start some real research. Yes. Uh, a good starting so point. It's a good starting point. I look at ChatGBT is worse than Wikipedia, early Wikipedia, because Wiki, early Wikipedia still wasn't, it wasn't that common. It would just tell you stuff that's completely, totally false. It was much more just grotesquely incomplete. And it wouldn't tell you with such comp confidence in itself the battle of the confederates won the battle of gettysburg are you sure wikipedia yes very sure (laughs) totally sure um all right well with that i would ask you about succession but i kind of want to wait for people who are catching up let's give them a couple more days this will be our only episode this week because of the memorial day holiday we taped a day late i have a question for you about to ponder in those days okay so as a feminist watching it, were you mad for feminist reasons about the ending? So I'm really annoyed at you because that's exactly what I want to talk about. And how dare you <laughs> anticipate exactly my biggest takeaway from the series finale, which is in two sentences, it illuminates the feminist dilemma in third wave feminism. I cannot wait to have that conversation because Nancy and I have been talking about it <laughs> nonstop since the end of the show. And I, I ended it. All I'll say is just to, just to wet the appetite, I'll end it. And I, I said, I thought they stuck the landing, which Nancy and I had been totally united that this is a great show, which triggered an interestingly and, not mad at me, but annoyed at the show conversation 
from Nancy. And so I cannot wait. So we've, we've hashed this out, Sarah, like we've hashed this out. So, so you're ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for this conversation. Uh, I also really enjoyed the fact that the characters names, it turns out told you everything you needed to know about the entire show. Look, this was like the tongue in cheek one. Uh, okay, there's three main characters, Kendall, Roman, and Shiv, and you'll never guess which one of them figuratively stabbed another in the back. <laughs> but <laughs> that's, of course, not the character's name who tells you the most about how the show's going to end. Tom Wamsgans. Tom Wamsgans. It turns out it was all in the name. All right, we're leaving it there. This is our only episode for this week. We are expecting more opinions and we'll be back to you next week. We're in June. It's the final countdown. We can also start playing SCOTUS bingo. Now, if you don't remember what that is, or you're just now tuning into this podcast, (laughs) we'll start with it next week. And can I just say, this is when this podcast gets lit. SCOTUS bingo is when it takes off. This is the difference between regular season NBA and playoffs NBA. When the big SCOTUS decisions come down, this is when we're slapping the floor on defense. This is when we're hitting the big threes. This is when this podcast goes off. We'll talk to you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.